Hello, welcome to the Agency Rainmaker TV show. So this is our first episode and we're so excited to talk to uh, our guest today. This is for agency owners to help them make it rain. So we're looking at all different topics and today we're looking at the topic of how do you become a thought leader? And one of the answers is a thought leader does research proprietary research that's of interest to their clients, and they know things and they talk about it. So with that, I'd like to welcome our guest, uh, Susan Bear. Susan, how are you today? Hey, I'm good, Henry. So nice to see you. So good to see you. Well, Susan founded Audience Audit. It is a marketing firm that helps agencies with their marketing research. and the research about positioning them as a thought leader, but also to help their clients position mm -hmm. themselves. So we'll be talking about both aspects of it. Um, so Susan, tell us who is your who? Who do you help? <laughs> uh, well, we're working with uh, folks who uh, run marketing agencies, leaders in marketing agencies that are working to help their agency develop a reputation reputation as a thought leader uh, in front of the audiences that they want to reach. So that's the bulk of our work. We do also do some work with actual thought leader speakers, stuff like that, who don't run a marketing agency, but have a consulting practice or something like that. Um, because the, you know, the bulk of our work is done to help uh, individuals and organizations develop their thought leadership reputation with a platform that's based on research. I'm a big fan of yours because when I ran my first big agency. Um, I walked up from account executive to president, but along the way, I said, could I be in charge of the research department? And we didn't have one. I invented it. And I was studying research methods at the university as part of my graduate program. I was really attracted to your approach with this uh, attitudinal segmentation research. And that you get real numbers to be able to apply this. My professor used to say, Susan, and he was quoting Lord Kelvin, the inventor of the Kelvin scale. Mm -hmm. If what you know cannot be measured, your knowledge is of a meager and unsatisfactory kind. <laughs> I like that quote. I'll have to no, use I that think you're quote. just the opposite. You're, <laughs> you're doing something that uh, is a meaningful and it's very satisfactory. Uh, tell us about the attitudinal segmentation research? So one of the things we know about followers of thought leaders in business is that um, they want something new that they haven't seen before, and they want something helpful. Um, and a lot of research tends to focus on things like demographics because they're easy to get. Is someone, you know, what's their gender? How old are they? What's their zip code? How much money do they make in a year? Um, I've been a marketing strategist for almost 40 years. And if I've learned anything, it's that that kind of information is often not very helpful when you're trying to decide on strategies for your marketing, for your messaging, deciding which audiences make your best prospects. You know, nobody wants an email that says, hello, woman, 25 to 49. It's just not very compelling. It's not very engaging. 
Um, and so the work we do is focused on helping uh, thought leaders understand an audience in a different way, which is how they think about a decision, a category, sort of what they're bringing with them into this consideration process when they're getting ready to buy a service for their business or they're getting ready to purchase a product uh, at the store. How are they thinking about that category and how are they thinking about which brands and providers to choose? And uh, that's information that you can really work with. And most of the time, Henry, it doesn't end up having anything to do with what people look like on paper because it's really just between their ears. So attitudinal segmentation um, is a quantitative approach to understanding sort of a qualitative question, which is why are you making decisions about this the way you are? Um, supported by real data. So that information is helpful in a lot of ways, uh, and that's why we do it. So pretend I wasn't the head of research. Is it pronounced a Likert scale or a Likert scale? It's Likert. Likert scale. Uh, I actually, yeah, I actually have a video on my YouTube channel, Fun With Research, that's called Frickin' Likerts, and that's how you can remember. That's how I'm going to remember a, it from now on. That's how you can remember that it's a Likert scale, yes. Yeah, so a Likert scale if you're not familiar, might be on one to 10, one to five. I think you mm -hmm. prefer one to six, which is really good because it doesn't give people the middle choice. Like a seven point scale, a lot of people will go for uh, four, you know, because yeah. it's the middle. Um, yeah, I mean, the argument people. against the middle point is that people, you think it means they're neutral on something, but in fact, more often than not, they're choosing it either because they don't want to answer the question or they don't know how to answer the question. So, you, you know, you risk interpreting data one way when that really wasn't how it's intended. And uh, sometimes we do use scales with middle points, um, but for a lot of our attitudinal stuff, we really are trying to force someone to even a mild state of agreement or disagreement with something that we're saying. So with the attitudinal scale, usually you start something like one strongly disagree and you go all the way up to strongly agree. And mm -hmm. you see where people are on that spectrum. Is that is that a mm -hmm. fair statement? Okay. Yeah, ours are, ours are agree completely or disagree completely at the ends of the scale. And, and this isn't like those uh, two minute surveys that Marriott gives you or, or National Rent-A-Car where you just wanna get off it and you go five, 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 five and, and get off it. This is thoughtful work that you do. And, and from the studies I've seen that you've done, there might be, I don't know, 25 to 50 questions. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, to get this kind of insight quantitatively without introducing your own bias, takes a, a little bit of time. It takes a series of questions because what we don't want to do is go in and say, hey, we think there are people like this in the audience. Are you one of those people? Because all that's doing is really boxing everybody into what you think the world looks like. So we have to go about it a different way. We usually have about 40 of these attitudinal statements that people have to rate. And then we're collecting other information about what they see as key challenges, the kinds of things they're concerned about or worried about, where they're getting information to help them make a decision like this, because that helps our clients help their audiences really sort of understand what's going on in the decision dynamic that they're looking at affecting. Something that I think is your secret sauce 
and we haven't talked about this before, mm. is your ability to cluster responses. So it's not just, well, here's all this data. Um, there right. was a classic book 20, 30 years ago called The Clustering of America. Mm -hmm. And it showed that we're not just the United States of America. What a misnomer. Um, right. It's more like there not are that 40 United. pockets. And, you know, there are shotguns and pickups. And then there's uh, the mm -hmm. twinks, uh, two incomes, no kids, you know. Uh, um, and yeah. you break these things down also in your research. Is that a fair statement? We do. So our segments are based just on how people are feeling from an attitudinal standpoint, it doesn't include any demographics or anything like that. And, I, and one of the things I'm really proud of is that our approach doesn't, um, isn't based on an assumption that we have. So some segment, you know, there's lots of different ways to segment an audience. You can segment an audience by a million different things, depending on what is what you're trying to look at. Um, but for the work that we're doing, we don't want to say, well, we think there are people like this and that and that, and then just dump them into those buckets. And is that a segmentation? It is. But it's really influenced by what our assumptions are about that audience. Um, and so what we do is uh, look at all of the data we have and crunch it statistically so that the math basically finds connections between people and identifies groups of people who feel very differently than other groups of people, but feel similarly within the group. They have a shared set of attitudes. So um, it's sort of like, you know, Forrest Gump, it's a box of chocolates. You don't know what you're going to get. Um, and it's really like Christmas when we get the data back, because then we see what's happening statistically which sometimes are very surprising. We see things grouped together. You're like, wow, I never would have imagined they have this attitude and that attitude. That's kind of interesting. What does that tell us? Um, so it's important to us that we're really trying to avoid putting our bias and our client's bias into the research and really understanding what's happening in an audience because that helps everybody. And the benefit it has is that not a lot of folks are doing this kind of research for thought leadership. So it's pretty much guaranteed to provide something new, a new perspective on an audience, which is really compelling from a thought leadership standpoint. If you're an agency leader or a strategic marketing consultant, I really suggest you look up some studies that Susan has done and, and they're out there to share. One was with predictive ROI and it was about the field of thought leadership. She's also- That was a great study. Yeah, fascinating. If you do say so yourself. No, it is. A, I just, I'll say it. The it's topic was fascinating. I mean, it was to, to do a thought leadership study about, with thought leadership followers about thought leadership. Really, really interesting. And, and Predictive has also done one now on um, how organizations are building their thought leadership. So uh, all that information is helpful, I think, to any thought leader. And those, those studies are public. As a book publisher and people who help people with their books. Uh, I had a call today when they said, oh, well, we're doing this study with Susan and the study is going to come out in February. And I was like, bingo, we have content. We have, yeah. and the dirty little secret of why you do some of this research is people want to find out how they compare to their peers. And they can't mm -hmm. go out and ask their peers themselves. That would be wrong. 
they mm -hmm. have to use third parties and it might be this agency that commissioned the study. The AMI study, for instance, um, was for agency management and it was looking at employees and uh, it definitely cascaded out that there are different types of people, different segments, if you will, working for agencies. And mm -hmm. if you're a leader, you need to pay attention to that. So yeah, I mean, I think thought leadership research and, and certainly what we do aims to be helpful to the audience that you're trying to get to listen to you and you're trying to have an impact on. So you've got to start with not just, hey, I'm curious about this, but what's going to be helpful for me to be able to share with my audience? And so whether you're interviewing buyers or whether you're interviewing marketers or whether you're whatever, you've got a plan that says, boy, this information is really going to make a difference to the people that I'm trying to serve with my business and with my thought leadership. So every study is different, which makes it uh, awfully fun to do. Well, I'll give everybody a dirty little research secret. And this was given to me by uh, Professor David Maester at the Harvard Business School, who wrote many books such as Managing the Professional Service Firm and The Trusted Advisor. And uh, there's one like Strategy and the Fat Smoker. He's retired now, but just brilliant work. Uh, but in his work, in working with big agencies, he found that the best research you could do is to show people how they compare to their peers. Mm. I, I have a story in my uh, workshop about working with a high-end firm and they were involved in technology and their clients were IBM and Hewlett Packard and Kodak. And they brought me in to help with some research. And I said, why am I here? And they said, Xerox, we can't crack the Xerox account. Mm -hmm. So I showed them how to do proprietary research, put on a workshop. They said, where, where should we do it? And I said, how about the Holiday Inn in Rochester, New York, across the street from Xerox headquarters? There you go. <laughs> 4 to 6 p.m., $49, beer and wine and appetizers included. Great um, idea, for sure. And uh, they had tried to get a meeting with the chief technology officer at Xerox for years, wouldn't return their phone calls. He did attend the workshop. And at the end, he came up and said, I have a bone to pick with you. And he goes, what is it? He goes, you're working for IBM. You're working for Hewlett Packard and Kodak. Why haven't you come talk to me? Nice. I, I like to share, I said, well, you have a choice if that ever happens to you. One, you can um, feed your ego or you can feed your children. Feeding your ego is, <laughs> well, we tried to get an appointment with you for four years. Feeding your children is, my bad, when would you like to meet? And that's right. how we landed the Xerox account. <laughs> that's so, wonderful. That's really, we, really good. We We just need to know the dirty little secret is people in business are worried that they're going to miss something. They, the yeah. competition has figured it out. Um, not only are they going to lose market share, but they're going to be made to look bad. The board yeah. or some other leader uh, is going to say, well, why didn't you know this? Right. The answer well, I'll is- I'll tell you the dirty- Oh, go ahead. Why no, won't they know ahead. it? I was going to say the dirty little secret of thought leadership. And we know this from our research with predictive ROI that you just brought up. Two thirds of thought leadership followers think thought leadership is basically BS for the most part. 
They think it's about ego. They think it's about selling. Uh, they think it's just opinion and people like to be sort of a talking head and feel important. Um, and that's two thirds of people who actually, of business people who follow thought leaders still think that. So I think that research gives people a real leg up from a trust standpoint, because you're not just up there spouting your opinions. You've actually got some data to support what you're talking about or to illustrate uh, your point of view. Um, and it does make a difference. So it does get people to, as you would say, you know, come across the road to see uh, what's up and get the information that you have. It, 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 it builds you a bigger platform uh, and a more trustworthy platform than a lot of thought leaders have. So it's another nice benefit, aside from just getting to understand your audience and provide something of value. It shows them something about you too. I think we go back to Edward Deming, Professor Deming, who the the Deming Prize for Quality in Japan is named after and uh, wrote the book Out of Crisis. And Deming was about statistical control, but he's famous for saying, in God we trust, all others must bring data. <laughs> and I think that's on the thought leadership that just having an opinion, well, we all, opinions and noses, we all have one. Um, so yeah. just having your opinion or what you think without some sort of numbers to back it up, um, like, where did you pull this out of uh, PFA? We call it pull from air, <laughs> they yeah. pulled some stuff from air and uh, yeah. backed it up. That is not thought leadership. It's yeah. Brilliant. I mean, I think that, I think that people can have really strong expertise that's driving their opinions, but the challenge is how do you build trust? that you're actually right, you know? And it just gives you one more pillar to, to, to build trust from your audience. Um, and, and it can make a big difference. And for, you know, we definitely see folks who, because of their perspective on how much sort of bunkus is out there with respect to thought leadership, for some people having data is like a baseline requirement because they're not gonna listen if you don't have something that really proves what you're saying to be true. So for some folks, it's a real gatekeeper situation. They're, they're not going to go to your session unless they know that you've got some research that you're going to be sharing. So I'm an agency nerd. I mean, I've read every book I can about, um, you know, Albert Lasker and uh, <laughs> the formation of Doyle Dane Birnbach and uh, Jay Walter Thompson. And then, of course, Ogilvy on advertising, David Ogilvy, what I yeah. took away from that book was he was a, an amazing creative and he based everything on research. Mm -hmm. And when the client would say, oh, for a, a travel campaign to the UK, you know, I think we should feature salmon fishing because I love salmon fishing and everyone I know loves the salmon fishing in the UK. And Ogilvy said, interesting, it finished 49th in our survey of what people wanted. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, we do work for agency clients as well. And uh, this type of work, whether it's used for thought leadership or whether it's used to plan out a new marketing initiative or because they're building a website or they're rebranding or, you know, whatever. Um, and I'll tell you, I can't, I can't count the number of agency leaders who have come back and said the data convinced them that our recommendations were the way to go. 
you know, the client was really holding on tightly to, we all have them. Everybody has assumptions. Everybody has beliefs. Been working in an industry for 30 years, you're going to have them, but they're not always right. And they're not always right today. Um, So having some data can help with that kind of thing too, for sure. Now, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't let you tell us some of the big agencies and clients you've worked with. Uh, could you share some of that, please? Sure. Well, uh, w- most of our agencies are actually small to mid-size agencies, um, but they work with big clients. We've worked with AT&T, with Gap, with Pella Windows, with Tufts University, with um, University of Arizona, you know, sort of the list goes on. So the great thing for me is that we get to work with a lot of different kinds of organizations in different industries or whatever, and really help them sort of suss out what's going on there and um, show up with information that nobody else has uh, about that and and be sharing that to be to be helpful. So we have, you know, very big companies. Uh, that are clients, and we have very small companies that are clients that are that are really uh, establishing a benchmark for thought leadership in their industry, even though maybe they're uh, sort of a mom and pop, you know, situation. Um, so uh, I love the variety. I feel like we all can use some good research and some good insight and stop sitting around a conference table guessing. Uh, so um, I'm a big fan of anybody who wants to incorporate research into the work that they're doing. Susan, one more question and putting you on the spot because we didn't talk about this, but okay. when we were together in December in Orlando, you and I were talking about a responsibility for people like you and I for this next generation of people in advertising coming up. Um, Mm -hmm. And I know you felt strongly about that. Could you share some of your views about uh, what we should be doing to help the next generation? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my career was, I I can't overstate how influenced my career was early on by a, a really senior guy at a top world-class marketing agency who really could have kicked me out of my office because I had no idea what I was doing when I went to talk to him, um, but instead was helpful and gave me some information and connected me with some folks and encouraged me and really got my me started in my uh, advertising career. And, and I think that all of us I would argue most of us have someone that we can think about who really went out of their way to help us with something and it had a big impact. And I believe in trying to carry that forward. You know, you just never know who you're going to help. And one of the things I love about thought leadership, the work we do for clients, as well as the thought leadership we build ourselves for our own agency, is that you can really base it on being helpful and, and sort of swim upstream against all of the talking heads or people who just like to think they're famous or spout their opinions or trying to sell something uh, from the stage or from a breakout session or, you know, something like that. You can really, you can really be helpful and start to make a difference and help other people see that path. And it just lifts everybody up. It's great. So the work we do um, was built to, to do that. And I built audience audit to help manifest that with ourselves and with our clients. Uh, And it's deeply rewarding. So I think 
for me, relentlessly helpful is a is a is something I try to accomplish every single day. And and I hope I'm showing other people how to do the same thing. It really, you know, people are afraid to be helpful. People are afraid to share their secret sauce of what they know or how to do something. Um, and in fact, what I've seen in my own business and we've seen in lots of our client businesses is the more helpful you are, the more generous you are, the more work comes your way. So it's really the opposite of what you think is going to happen. Nobody's going to, nobody's you. So they may be able to steal some ideas, but they're not you. They're not going to manifest in the same way. And being generous actually really brings more business in. Kind of hard to believe, but it's true. I think making your brand relentlessly helpful is great advice for everyone. Well, thank you, Susan, so much for being on Agency Rainmaker, the first TV show. Uh, so you're the best guest we've ever had. So <laughs> Low far. bar. That's so good. Far. Thank you, Henry. <laughs> you oh, set the bar. What, what, a tr what a treat to be on the show and what a privilege to be your first guest. I'm, I'm excited to watch and learn and listen because I know you have a lot of wonderful people you'll be talking to. Thanks so much. And I look forward to seeing you uh, next week at, uh, next at a week. workshop in, in Florida. Oh, thank great. you, everybody, for uh, listening. And until next time, make it rain. <laughs> <laughs>